Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. afternoon and welcome to Salt to Soul. Great to be with you on a Wednesday afternoon. And today is the 7th of December. 7th of December is a significant date in the calendar because today is the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was the terrible attack um, by the Japanese Navy on the uh, Pacific Fleet of the United States in the harbor called Pearl Harbor in Hawaii and the reason why that took place it was during World War II and Japan was an ally of the Nazis and of the Italians the axis of evil as it was known and the Japanese felt that the United States were standing in their way of their imperialistic aspirations there were a number of territories that the Japanese wanted to conquer and control in the Pacific region and the greatest threat to that in their mind was the Americans, was the United States. And so they felt that in order to be able to be free to carry out what their ideals were, what their plans were, they would have to um, destroy America's Pacific fleet. And the Japanese knew that um, a protracted, protracted war with the United States would be impossible. They would never be able to... They don't have the same size economy. It wouldn't be able to sustain um, and uh, and continue to wage war successfully against the Americans. So if it was a long protracted war, they certainly would lose. And therefore, they took the very bold move of trying to destroy the Pacific fleet in one stroke. And that was this attack on Pearl Harbor today, 81 years ago. The attack commenced at 7.48 a.m., Hawaiian time, and the base was attacked by 353 Imperial Japanese aircraft, which had been launched from the aircraft carriers, um, and they had completely uh, surprised the Americans. They didn't see them coming. That was a, a terrible blunder in um, in logistics and in, of course, in intelligence from the Americans. They didn't see them coming. Um, and those planes, those 353 planes, included fighters, level and dive bombers, torpedo bombers. They came in two waves, launched from six aircraft carriers. Of the eight U.S. Navy battleships present, all were damaged, um, with four sunk. All but the USS Arizona were later raised, and six were returned to service and went on to fight in World War II. The Japanese also sank or damaged three cruisers, three destroyers, an anti-aircraft training ship, and one mine layer. More than 180 United States aircraft were destroyed. 2,403 Americans were killed, and 1,178 were wounded. Um, as a result of, of this attack, um, it led to America's entering into World War II, which was, of course, extremely significant, which we'll discuss in a moment. But first, I would just like to refer to a number of um, American 
navy, naval officers, which a, a number of Jewish naval officers, which were actually involved and participated in these um, in Pearl Harbor. Um, one of them, which I think is interesting information to share with you, um, one of them was a name of uh, uh, individual by the name of Lieutenant Commander Solomon Isquith. Um, he was the second of seven children born to a New York family. Because um, the senior ranking officer aboard the USS Utah in Pearl Harbor, he became, sorry, the, the ranking officer on USS Utah in Pearl Harbor. After two torpedoes slammed his vessel, Isquith directed more than 500 crew members to abandon the ship. He stayed aboard to oversee the evacuation until the ship capsized. Then he escaped through a porthole in the captain's cabin. Although 80, 58 crew members of Utah lost their lives, an incredible 461 survived, which the survivors attributed to their excellent training and Esquith's calm efficiency. That's according to the Jewish American um, Warrior magazine. Esquith then led a charge of heroes who sailed around the harbor on smaller boats in an effort to save more people. His bravery earned him a Purple Heart and a naval cross that read with extraordinary courage and disregard for his own safety, Lieutenant Commander Isquith directed the abandonment of the ship when it was capsizing rapidly in such a cool and efficient manner that approximately 90% of the crew were saved, which is quite an amazing achievement. So that was his, uh, the, um, the, uh, words that were read when he received his Purple Heart. In 1947, Isquith ended a 30-year military career with the rank of Rear Admiral. He died in 1969 and was buried in Arlington National Cemetery. Um, There were other Jews involved in the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, Nathan Asher of New York and Milton Muldane of St. Louis were aboard the USS Blue, a destroyer that was at sea protecting the shores of Pearl Harbor. With the ship docked for refueling and the skipper on shore, Asher found himself in charge. He directed the crew in heading the blue out to sea as Muldane took charge of the Ford machine guns. Uh, Muldane recalled the sight of Japanese planes buzzing around at about 30 or 40 feet overhead. Our ship kept firing at the planes as it headed out to sea. I went out to the bridge to help Asher when we both saw a Japanese plane that the blue's guns had hit go into a uh, hit into uh, go into a, pine, a pineapple field. The men gave out a cheer when they saw the plane burst out into flames. Other Pearl Harbor survivors included Private Aaron Chabin, who was born to a Jewish family in Detroit and enlisted in the army at the age of 18. One of the soldiers in his barracks was James Jones, author of World War II novel From Here to Eternity. The morning of the 7th, Chabin was relaxing on his bed in the barracks reading the Honolulu advisor when he and his fellow soldiers heard the ex- heard an explosion. They were shocked and totally unprepared, he said. With the Japanese plane swarming above, Chabin ran to his post at the communications center. His commander handed him a loaded gun, telling him to save the last bullet. He handed me my weapon and he said, don't be taken prisoner. Chabin spent the rest of the day relaying phone messages between officers and watching Pearl Harbor go up in smoke. Fifty years later, he returned for commemoration of the attack. He was moved to see his name on the active duty roster from 1941 
and visit his old barracks. Um, he passed away in 2017. Other Jewish witnesses of the carnage of Pearl Harbor died in the prime of their life. They included Charles M. Stern, Jr., um, a 26-year-old ensign of the, on the USS Oklahoma, one of the 429 crewmen who died in a Japanese torpedo attack of their ship. The Navy spent the next three years recovering their remains, which were interred in a mass grave in the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, known as the Punch Bowl in Honolulu. So we see the fascinating events of this day 81 years ago, and a number of Jews were involved. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We're discussing today being the 81st anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor in, the, in Hawaii, and that marked the entrance of the United States into World War II, which was extremely significant because um, up until then, it really could have gone either way in the war between the axis of evil, the Nazis, the Japanese, and the Italians against the Allies. Um, at that stage, it was uh, England who were fighting the English and the French were fighting against the Nazis. And um, the truth is that the United States, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, of course, declared war on Japan and uh, Japan declared war on, on the United States. But they didn't, the United States didn't declare war on Germany, even though Germany and Japan were allies, the United States didn't declare war on Germany. And Hitler, in his agreement, in his treaty with the Japanese, didn't uh, understand it didn't require him to declare war in the United States but Hitler was a person obsessed he couldn't control himself he was obsessed with Roosevelt he was obsessed with the Jews and uh, and had a conspiracy theory that the Jews were controlling Roosevelt and controlling America which of course was false um, and he then declared war on the United States when that happened so then Congress declared war on Germany and the United States was in the war. And that was really the um, turning of the tide of World War II. And even though the United States primarily, they, they were fighting the Pacific against the Japanese, but they also entered into the European theater, which of course was the turning point. Because up until that point, it really could have gone either way in Europe with the British. And at that, that stage, of course, the, um, the Russians were Part were allied with the British because um, Hitler had already in, in June 1941, Operation Barbarossa, had already attacked the East, had attacked the Russians. And so Hitler controlled Western Europe and now we're fighting the war in Eastern Europe. And it really could have gone either way with the United States thrown into the mix. So that really made all the difference and that was the turning point. And as Winston Churchill said, that um, he for the first time, went to sleep on December the 9th, 1941, first time in eight years he was confident that the Western world would be saved because now America was in the war and, uh, and with the resources, the soldiers, the arms that America would supply, Churchill for the first time was confident that the Allies would defeat Hitler. Um, so it's important to remember this date and uh, the beginning of the end for the Germans 
with their declaring war on the United States. Okay, so that's the 7th of December, today's date in the um, Gregorian calendar. Let's look at the dates um, in the Hebrew calendar at this time. Um, yeah, today is the 13th of the month of Kislev. Kislev, of course, we know as being the month when Hanukkah is. So Hanukkah begins on the 25th of Kislev, 12 days from today. Um, so it's Monday, uh, two weeks will be, so actually Monday a week is Hanukkah. So it was this past Monday, two weeks. And Hanukkah is a beautiful holy festival with so much beauty and depth and meaning and significance and relevance to our times. And so it's important that we all observe Hanukkah as we should, lighting our menorahs each night at the right time, half an hour after sunset, um, we all obligated to light our menorah, preferable to use olive oil because the miracle took place with olive oil. And each day we increase another candle um, until we conclude the festival on the eighth day, um, the wonderful and holy festival of Hanukkah. Today being the 13th of Kislev, I just want to mention yesterday, the 12th of Kislev, was actually the yacht site of the great and holy Marshal. The Marshal was um, born in 1510. He was one of the great rabbis of Europe. He died in 1573. So he died at the young age of 63. And he was known as um, from the acronym Marshal. So his real name was Rabbi Shlomo Luria. So Marshal stands for Moreno Harav Shlomo. Luria, Mahashal. Um, he actually tracked his ancestry back to Rashi. He was related to the famous Ramo, the, the great Ramo, who lived in Krakow, who wrote the, his commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, his extension on the Shulchan Aruch, which was known as the Mapa. Um, so we have the Shulchan Aruch written by Rav Yosef Karo at that time, and the Ramo wrote his notes on that, which is the relevance to Ashkenazim, to Ashkenazi Jews, and there, as a result of that great act, Shulchan Aruch became the standard book of Jewish law for on all of the Jewish people, both Ashkenazim and Sephardim. And um, the so his it was actually his uncle. The, the marshal was the uncle of the Ramo, and he wrote famous works called the Yamshel Shlomo and the Chochma Shlomo which is um, an abridged version of the Yamshel Shlomo on the Talmud, which is really a classic work of great scholarship, which is used by Talmudim that study Talmud. Um, he was the rabbi of the city of Brisk, and he then headed the famous yeshiva in Lublin, um, which attracted many students from all across Europe. And um, he actually was buried in Lublin. I've been to his cemetery in Lublin. The, the Chazer of Lublin is buried there, the great Hasidic Rebbe. Um, and the marshal also is buried over there in Lublin. So that was yesterday, the 12th of Kislev. Today is the 13th of Kislev. And today is the yacht site of the great and famous Amoira by the name of Ravina. Ravina was the co-editor of the Babylonian Talmud, which is obviously the prime um, source of all of Jewish law. All of our law is based on the discussions in the Talmud. And the Talmud is made up of two parts. The Talmud is made up of the Mishnah and of the Gemara. The Mishnah is, so it's, it's interesting, um, on Friday is the 15th of Kislev, and that is the Yotzad of Rebbe, Rebbe Huda Nasi. And uh, Rebbe was the great leader of the Jewish people in 135 of the Common Era until 220 of the Common Era. And that was his lifespan. He was a, a tremendous um, individual. He was known as Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince. 
and uh, he led the Jewish people in the period after the destruction of the Second Temple. He was a very wealthy man, he was a very connected man, and he was a great sage. And he, in fact, developed a very close relationship with the ruling Roman authorities and was able to secure many benefits for the Jewish community as a result of his political connections. His greatest achievement, of course, was writing the Mishnah, which is the Jewish um, a summary of the oral law, of the oral tradition that we have. Um, so originally, when God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai, so there's the written Torah, which is the Chamisha Chumshei Torah, the five books of Moses, and there's the oral tradition, which is the explanations of the five books of Moses. Without the oral tradition, one really can't understand what is in the written law. So, okay, so let's maybe get it all clear for our listeners. We have the written Torah, which is the five books of Moses, and then we have, so that's the Torah. We also have Nevi'im and Ksuvim. Nevi'im is the prophets, and Ksuvim is the writings, and together they make Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ksuvim. So that's the acronym um, of those three three words. Torah is the Taf, Nevi'im is the Nun, Ksuvim is the Chaf. And that makes Tanakh. Tanakh is the books of the Bible, the 24 books of the Bible, which are the Tanakh. And that is essentially known as the written Torah, the, the Torah that was written down. In addition to that, we have the oral tradition. Now, the oral tradition was never meant to be written down. It is what God told Moses at Mount Sinai and was then shared with the Jewish people from that point on. It was about a thousand years that the oral tradition remained oral, was never written down. And the reason why it was not meant to be written down was because the ability to transfer information from a parent to a child, from a teacher to a student, um, is it's a, a, the information that one receives from a teacher is much more powerful than information we receive from a book. We pick up a book so we can, you know, read the book and we could understand it in many different ways and we could maybe miss the nuances and miss a lot of the information. When it's taught orally, so the one who's teaching it makes sure that the student or the child picks up the information in the way it was intended with all the nuances and with all the details and with the perspective of understanding it in a clear and proper way. Um, So the chances of misunderstanding and of information being distorted and misread is much less when it's passed down orally. And that is the importance, that's the power, that's the um, intention of the oral tradition. However, Rebbe, so it wasn't written down for a long time, wasn't written down for for um, for um, over a thousand years, actually over 1500 years. Rebbe, however, saw that there were persecutions and exiles, um, and he was concerned that that would break down the chain of transmission. Up until Rebbe's point, everything had been transmitted through the generations in entirety. It was a watertight transmission of tradition that had passed through the generations. Rebbe saw that with the changing of the situation for the Jewish people and the control of the Roman Empire of the world, and the persecution of Klai Israel, he was worried that the chain of transmission would be threatened and it wouldn't be passed down completely. And therefore he took the very bold step of deciding to write down the Mishnah in its final form. Um, and he actually gathered together a, a convention of sages 
and they all submitted their version. So the Mishnah then became a very concise description of the oral tradition, like a summary, also being very cryptic, but a, a um, broad summary of the entire oral tradition. And from that summary, then the oral tradition could be explained. So Rebbe um, has this convention and they write down the mission. They all submit their versions. Rebbe editors, edits the final version. And that's what we call Shas, the Shisha Sidre Mishnah that we um, have. And that was the original writing down of the oral tradition. Um, Rebbe famously said that I learned much from my teachers and uh, more from my colleagues, but colleagues, but the most from my Talmida Yosa Mikula, Rebbe very famously said. So um, that is the rest. So Rebbe's Yotzat, the great Rebbe Huda Nasi's Yotzat is on Friday, the 15th of Kislev. And after he wrote the Mishnah, so then there were many conversations of the sages um, with regards to what those Mishnahs meant. Again, the Mishnah was written down in a very cryptic fashion deliberately because it would require unraveling and explanation and elaboration of what was written in the Mishnah. And that took place by the sages of the Talmud. Um, so the Mishnah, the completion of the of the writing of the Mishnah was um, just after the year 200 of the Common Era. And then the most of the Jewish community was exiled by the Romans. So Rebbe was right. He could see the writing on the wall and could see that there were turbulent times ahead for the Jewish people. And so the community, the when Nebuchadnezzar conquered um, the land of Israel, he sent most of the of the community into exile, into Babel, into Babylonia. And many returned and the second temple was built. And then when the second temple was destroyed and the Jews were again were exiled from the land of Israel, from the Byzantine Christians, which were actually in control um, of Israel, you know, they were Romans. Um, so the majority of the community then returned again to Babel. And the center of the Jewish world became Babylonia Babel, which is what Iran or Iraq today, those areas. And that's where they wrote down the Gomorrah. So the Gomorrah was written down in those years um, between about the year 200 um, to um, the year, to about the year uh, 450, maybe 500. Um, that's when the, the Talmud was written down in Babylonia. And the Talmud was edited by Ravina and Ravashi. So today is, so I'm, I'm jumping around a bit with the dates, but today is the Yotzat, the 13th of Kislev of Ravina, who was the co-editor of the Talmud. So we have Rabbi Yudanasi's Yotzat on Friday, the 15th of Kislev, he wrote down the Mishnah, and Ravina's Yotzat today, the 13th of Kislev, who then after Rabbi Yudanasi was in charge together with his colleague Ravashi of editing of editing the Talmud. So the Talmud is really the conversations and discussions on the Mishnah. So in Babylon, Babylonia, they had the full Mishnah, Shisha Sitra Mishnah, the six, um, the six orders of Mishnah, and there were many discussions and conversations and explanations and elaborations of the Mishnayos in the Bate Midrashos in Babylonia, in Pumpatissa, in Surah, in Naradai, which were the centers in Babylonia where the Jews live, and they had very large um, academies of learning of yeshivot over there. And they, these conversations explaining the Mishnayos took place um, at that time. And then Ravina and Ravashi um, wrote down, they took the mammoth work. So, so it was from about 450 that they summarized and edited and compiled the 
Talmud as we have it today. So the Talmud Bavli is what we learn. When a person learns Gomorrah, they learn Talmud Bavli. When somebody goes to Yeshiva, they learn the Talmud, they learn Mishnah and Gomorrah, primarily Talmud Bavli, um, which is uh, what is, uh, has kept the Jewish world together all of these years through the centuries. And uh, the Talmud Bavli is, uh, is not easy to learn. We, we have, uh, I'm sure our listeners have heard of Daf Yomi. Daf Yomi is when somebody learns one page of the Talmud a day. It takes the, the 2,711 folios in the Talmud. So those are double pages. So it makes it 5,422 um, pages in the Talmud. So that's 5,422 days that it takes to complete um, the, the, uh, the Talmud, which is just over seven years. And that is the Daf Yomi program. So uh, Ravina and his... His uh, colleague, he called him his teacher as well, Rav Ashi. They undertook that momentous task of, of let's go on about Vasra. He says Rav Ashi was his colleague and his teacher um, of the Talmud. And the Gemara regards them as of equal weight. And they, they marked the end of the what's called the Amoraim. The Tanaim was the era when the Mishnah was written. And the Amoraim was the era, era when the Talmud was written. The final editions and redactions of the Talmud would uh, take about... Another two generations after Rav Ashi died in 499 of the Common Era, uh, the Talmud in the exact format that we have it today would not be completed until the 7th century, when with the input of the Rabbanim Savoraim, the successors of the Amoraim would be finalized. The eulogy, the Gemorim word cut and tells us of the eulogy of Ravina, whose Yotzad it is today. And at his eulogy, they said, the dates have lowered their heads in respect to the righteous man who stood tall as the palm tree in his righteousness. Let us mourn his passing night and day in the same manner as he devoted himself in his lifetime night and day to the study of Torah. So that is the great and holy Ravina whose Yotzatid is today. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So this week's Parsha is really powerful and fascinating. We say that every week, don't we? And it is true every week. But we see the very significant encounter between Yaakov and Esau between Jacob and his brother, his estranged brother Esau. Jacob's been 20 years in the house of Lavan. He now returns and he's very concerned about meeting with Esau and about the um, consequences of that meeting. And Jacob um, says that he, he, his plan, his strategy is to give gifts to his brother in, with the hope of placating him and of not having to um, battle with having a conflict and confrontation with him and he sends him he divides up his camp into two and he has a number of waves of individuals that um, one after the other you know with a lot of cattle approach Asaph and so it looks like the whole plane the whole horizon is filled with animals and Yaakov wants to give these to Asaph and he says to Asaph um, Asaph says to him, what is all of this? And Yaakov says, these are gifts that I want to give to you, my brother. And Asaph says to him, you know, I have 
much. Yeshli Rav, I have a lot. Um, I don't need your gifts. And Yaakov says to him, please, Hashem has blessed me. Um, as it says in the Pasuk, Kachna es birkasi. Please take that which I've been blessed with. Ashihuvata lach ki chanani elokim. That I'm giving to you because Hashem has been gracious to me. Because I have because I have everything. That's what Jacob says to his brother Esau. The Gemara says on this pasuk a very interesting thing. The Gemara in Bava Basra on Daftes Zayin Amud Beis at the bottom says Tana Rabbonan Shloisha Hitminan Hakadosh Baruch Hu Bo'Elam Hazeh Mi'ein Ha'Olam Haba. Three Hakadosh Baruch Hu gave a taste in this world like Olam Haba. So Hakadosh Baruch Hu Hashem gave three individuals a taste of the next world in this world. Um, Elohen, and who are these three? Says the Gemara, Abraham, Yitzchak, the Yaakov. They were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Dixiv, how do we know that Abraham got a taste of the next world in this world? As it says with regards to Abraham, Bako, that Hashem blessed him, Bako, with everything. Yitzchak, Dixiv, with regards to Yitzchak, the Pasuk says, Miko. And Yaakov Dixiv be kol. And Yaakov says kol. So we just read the Pasuk in which Hashem blesses Yaakov with everything, with kol. So the Gavor is saying that, uh, that Yaakov, Hashem gave Yaakov a taste of the next world in this world. That's what the blessing, the blessing of kol is. Rashi says, what is the blessing of kol? Yeshli kol. Rashi says kol sipuka. I've been given all of my needs. Yaakov lived in a world and with an attitude that Hashem had given him everything he needed. The Esav Dava Dibeb Loshan Gaiva. However, Rashi says, Esav speaks with a Loshan of arrogance of Gaiva. Yeshli Rav, that I have a lot, not that I have everything. So he's saying, Yotir Vyotir Mikadeksarki. I have more and more than what I need. In other words, how powerful and how wealthy I am. That was Esav's attitude, as opposed to Yaakov's attitude, which is that I have everything. And that is really the difference between the way a Jew is supposed to view this world with a Torah attitude as opposed to Esav's view of the world. Um, as it says in the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, Ezehu Ashir, who is the wealthy person? Samech Bechelkoi. That's the one who's satisfied with what he has. Isn't it an interesting teaching of the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos? Who is the wealthy person? The one who's satisfied with what he has. So, you know, in our world, we don't see it that way. We see the one who's satisfied and the one who feels that he has been given sufficient uh, blessings. So that person we see as a, you know, somebody who's lacking motivation, as somebody who doesn't have any ambition, somebody perhaps we view them as like a failure. You know, this guy, he's satisfied with the small amount that he has. We don't see that as a successful person. The Mishnah doesn't only say is that a happy person, but that's a wealthy person. Why is that a wealthy person? Because as our sages teach us, Chazal say, Yesh mane rotse ma A person who has a hundred wants two hundred. We're never satisfied unless we develop an attitude of gratitude. In other words, even a person has much, he has a hundred, he has a lot. He always wants two hundred. He's chasing, he wants more. He doesn't see the blessing of his beautiful home, of his beautiful family, of his beautiful car, he needs the latest model, the 2022 model. He needs the, the his home to be absolutely magnificent and perfect. 
um, and he constantly or she is constantly renovating the home and it's just never good enough. So the person who only has 100, they, they're not satisfied with the 100. They want more. They want 200. They want 300. They're constantly striving for more um, in, a, in a way that they don't appreciate what they have. Whereas that was Asaph's view. Yaakov's view is he had an attitude of gratitude. He, 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 he knew, yes, there are others that have more than me, but look how much I have. He was satisfied with Ezehu Asher Samech Bechelkot. He was satisfied with what he had, and he saw the great blessing in what he had, in his possessions, in all that Hashem had blessed him with. And that's why it says in the Pasha that he went back for Pachim Katanim, for the small, um, the small jars, because Hashem had blessed him with them, and he knew that it was his responsibility to use them in the service of Hashem, and he appreciated every single thing that Hashem had given him. So it's a, it's a beautiful expression of different attitudes in the world. And the attitude of the Jew needs to be, I'm not saying a person shouldn't be ambitious or a person shouldn't be, uh, want to be successful. On the contrary, you know, our, our worldview needs to be that if we do something, we do it properly. And we, if we involved in something, we give it everything that we've got. And we should be ambitious and we should strive for success. Absolutely. But once we've put in our effort in Aishtadlus, we then should appreciate what Hashem has blessed us with. And we appreciate our home. Yes, it's not the best in the world, but it's a roof over our heads and it's a, a wonderful place for me and my family to live. And I'm very grateful to Hashem that I have that. And I have my car. It may not be the latest fancy model with all the latest features, but nonetheless, it is a, a, a safe car that gets me from A to B. So that needs to be the attitude, and that's Yaakov's attitude of kol. Hashem blessed me with kol. Yeshli kol. That was Yaakov's view of what he had. And says the Gemara, that is tasting Olam Haba in this, in, the next, in this world. Tasting the satisfaction of the next world in this world. When we have that attitude of gratitude. Whereas Esav, who was arrogant, and he said, I have a lot, and I have more than I need, and I'm going to continue to acquire a lot. And he was chasing after you're comparing himself with others. So that is not the Jewish view and the Jewish attitude. And I was thinking that, you know, we're reading this uh, just before we go on holiday, just before our summer holidays, the December holidays. And on our holidays, we should be very conscious of this and aware of the correct attitude that we should have. And, uh, you know, you may not be saying in the best house um, in the holiday city that you are fortunate to go to. You may not have the best car over there, but we don't live a life comparing ourselves to others. We don't live a life comparing our spouse to other people's spouses and our, our wealth to other people's wealth. We learn to have an, a view of our life and our situation with an appreciation, without comparing to others, and with a grateful attitude to Hashem who's blessed us with all that we have. So that really should be on our minds as opposed to chasing and comparing and competing with everybody else that's not the purpose of the holiday. That's going to be destructive on a holiday. And the idea of a holiday is to be constructive in terms of spending quality time with our spouse, spending quality time with our children, spending quality time with our Creator, with Hashem, appreciating all Hashem gives us in our life. So that should be our attitude on a holiday rather than comparing and uh, being filled with jealousy and filled with um, a sense of... Um, the fact that we haven't achieved what we should, that shouldn't be our attitude on our holiday.
you stay with us, we'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We'll end off with a beautiful insight of the Sloni Marebi, the great and holy Nesivo Shalom Zatzal of blessed memory. Nesivo Shalom says on the Pasuk in this week's Pasha, after Yaakov meets with Esav, so he goes back, it says he divided his camp into two in order to protect them, and he had left some things behind, and he crossed the river to collect some of those items, the Pachim Katanim, that he had left behind him. And the Torah tells us that Yaakov was, Yevater means was standing alone, and he tussled with an ish, which is actually representing the sarshal, Esav, a spiritual being, until until the morning broke. So the word Yevater can be standing alone, it also can be superfluous in Hebrew, Yevater, Yitur. Yeter, also means, says the son that Yaakov felt superfluous. And that's when he was alone, and that's when he was attacked by the Sarshal Esav, which is actually the Yed Sahara. And Rabbi Tuesi explains this very beautifully. He, he says that, Oilam Chesed Yibane, the world was created for Chesed. That's what David HaMelech says in Tehillim, that the foundation, the underpinning of the entire world is Chesed. In other words, the reason why Hashem created the world was in order to bestow of his chesed on another being. That's what it says, the Ramchal writes in Derech Hashem, that the purpose of creation was Hashem would have this being, this sophisticated being called a human being, upon which Hashem could bestow his chesed, which is the ultimate act of kindness, and that's the secret behind the creation of the world. And our role in this world is to actually emulate Hashem, to emulate God, as the Gemara says in Shabbos, just as Hashem is compassionate, we need to be compassionate. Just as Hashem is merciful, we need to be merciful. And so we were created to emulate the chesed, the kindness of HaKadosh Baruch And that's why the Torah says, It's not good for a human being to be alone. That Hashem created a partner for a human being. We have a spouse. It's, we're not good. We're in a state of not good if we're alone, if we are not married. When we're married, we have another being upon whom to bestow kindness, upon whom to live with in a state of giving and of kindness. We were created. That's our purpose in this world is to, is to bestow kindness on another being, primarily on our spouse and then, of course, on our children. Rabbi Tversky writes a, a brilliant insight. He says that, um, the way we value things, there's two ways to value things. Either they're functional or they're ornamental. Uh, for example, a grandfather clock. A grandfather clock, even though the function of telling the time maybe is no longer working, but since it's a beautiful clock, you will still use it. But a can opener, which is no longer functional, it's not ornamental, so you'll get rid of it. So as human beings, where should our self-worth come from? It doesn't come from an ornamentality. It's not from, you know, even the most beautiful of human beings are going to age and their beauty will wane. The function of a human being is the source of our confidence and self-worth. And our function, our primary function is to bestow kindness, is to bestow chesed. That's the true worth of a human being in this world. One of the tactics of the Yetzirah is to crush a person 
start by depriving them of the ability to do chesed. The person who is isolated from others and cannot give of themselves to others may lose their sense of self-worth because that natural function of a human being to bestow kindness on others doesn't exist in their world and in their life. And that's why it says, he felt superfluous and that's when the Yetzirah attacked him because he was not in a state of giving and of helping others. So that's when we're vulnerable to the attacks of the Yetzirah. So it's a beautiful insight into the fact that a human being was created to bestow kindness to others. The primary um, platform in which to do that is through marriage and through having children. And that is the purpose why we're in this world. And that is fulfilling our primary function as human beings. And by doing so, we automatically, the, the byproduct of that is having a healthy self-worth, a healthy self-esteem. And that is an inbuilt protection against the attacks against us of the Yetzirah, says the Holy Nasiba Shalom. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.